Good morning. Welcome to the City of Sacramento's Law and Legislation Committee. I call this meeting to order. Madam Clerk, will you please call the roll to establish a quorum? Thank you, Chair. Councilmember Kaplan? Here. Councilmember Gear? Here. Councilmember Jennings? Here. Chair Valenzuela? I'm here. Uh, Councilmember Kaplan, will you lead us in the land acknowledgement and Pledge of Allegiance? Please rise for the opening acknowledgments in honor of Sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands. To the original people of this land, the Nisanan people, the Southern Maidu, the Valley and Plains Miwok, the Putwin Wintoon people, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe. May we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing today to gather, by choosing to gather today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contributions, and lives. Please remain standing. Pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, May be seated. Thank you, Council Member. Well, we have quite a packed agenda today. We are going to be stricter than I normally am, that if you don't turn in your comment card when the item begins, we might not get to you, because um, we do have a lot of things to get to. So if you're interested in making public comment, there are slips in the back and here at the front that you can turn in to get on our list. Um, so, and to just also for folks who might be watching or here for item six, just want to publicly state that that item has been continued to January 6th. 16th. So if you are here for that item, apologize for the inconvenience and please come back to us in January. So with that, we will start with the consent calendar with an editorial note that item two is super wonky. It was formatted by someone who is new to the job and it will be back in the format that we are familiar with it come our next meeting. Because <laughs> I was like, why are there items for 2018 in here? I don't understand. So um, with that note, does anybody have any questions or comments about items on the consent calendar? Moved and seconded. All in favor, please say aye. Aye. Any opposed? Abstentions? Measure carries unanimously. Thank you all. Now jumping right into item three, our vacancy tax proposal presentation from staff. Uh, welcome, Greta. Please begin. Good afternoon, Chair. Good afternoon, Chair Valenzuela and members of the Law and Legislation Committee. Today, we're requesting that the committee receive a report on options for a potential vacancy tax and pass a motion directing staff to conduct outreach on one of the recommended options and return to Law and Legislation Committee with a draft ballot measure for, for consideration. This presentation is a follow-up to our initial discussion at the March 7th, 2023 Law and Legislation Meeting. At our March meeting, we reviewed the following information. We highlighted that there are over 3,600 privately owned vacant lots in the city of Sacramento. We reviewed existing city incentives, such as our vacant lot program and recently developed housing development toolkit, which has been shared with owners of privately owned vacant lots. We also provided an overview of other jurisdictions that have implemented or considered a vacancy or vacant parcel tax, as well as the different types of taxes among those jurisdictions. 
Lastly, we reviewed examples of potential exemptions and revenue amounts and uses. Since our March meeting, we have re researched the number of vacant buildings in the city using water consumption data, mapped vacant buildings and parcels, and had further discussions with the City of Oakland regarding implementation of their vacancy tax. There are over 3,600 privately owned vacant parcels in the city. The highest number of vacant parcels are found in districts one and two, as shown on this map and in the staff report. At the March meeting, committee members requested data on the nature of vacant buildings in our city. To understand vacancies in the city, water meter usage data was used. When looking at the number of buildings that use zero water for a one-year period from May 2022 through April of 2023, we found that there were 451 vacant buildings. When looking at the types of properties to be found vacant, about half of these buildings were single-family dwellings. However, over 200 buildings ranging in use and size were also found to be vacant. There are many approaches that we can take uh, to va taxing vacant buildings and or properties. So the options listed here are ranked from least to most restrictive. Option A would be to pursue the taxation of entirely vacant parcels only. Option B would be to pursue entirely vacant parcels and vacant commercial and mixed use buildings in which the entire building is vacant. And lastly, option C would be to pursue vacant individual units in addition to entirely vacant parcels and buildings. While the main intent of a tax is to spur development, activation, or sale of vacant properties, exemptions are an important component of a vacant property tax program. A list of exemptions for consideration could include active construction occurring on the property, there's a building permit application on the property, the property owner is a non-profit organization, there's a substantially complete application for planning, activation of the site through urban ag or a community garden, or an art installation or other site activation. Tax revenue could be used for a number of council priorities. Some examples include affordable housing support, funding for code enforcement of vacant properties, technical assistance for vacant lot owners to develop properties, or infrastructure funding for housing. In the city of Sacramento, vacant pro properties vary widely in size, thus a tax could be graduated based on the size of the property under the assumption that larger parcels have greater impacts on the surrounding neighborhood or community. An illustrative example is provided here, ranging from $3,000 to $10,000 per property. To provide an example of what tax revenues could look like, we applied the previous slide rates to the identified properties. This representative example is based on the current number of vacant lots and buildings prior to screening out for exemptions. Once exemptions to the tax are finalized, staff will refine the estimated number of vacant parcels and buildings that could be subject to the tax. Included in the staff report is also a proposed outreach timeline because this proposal would be a special tax, it would require two-thirds voter approval to pass. This timeline assumes placement of a measure to be voted on in the November 2024 election. This concludes my presentation. Again, today we're requesting that this committee pass a motion directing staff to conduct outreach 
on one of the rec recommended options and return to the Law and Legislation Committee with a draft ballot measure for consideration. Any additional committee input would also be appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Greta. Um, we will now go to public comment. Madam Clerk, do we have anybody signed up? Thank you, Chair. We have six speakers. The first speaker is Jack Blattner, followed by Robert Copeland. Members, Jack Blattner with the Sacramento Metro Chamber, representing businesses throughout the six-county region. Uh, as the voice for business in the region, we do recognize the problem of vacant land in the city, and we are not opposed to incentives for developing vacant commercial property. Every vacant lot or empty storefront is a wasted opportunity to replace blight with a business that provides goods or services to the community and crucial tax revenue to the city. We would, however, encourage the city to approach the problem of vacant property from both ends, with sticks and with carrots. Businesses and potential businesses are struggling with increases and pending increases to, for example, revenue taxes, utility fees, electrification, and rising housing development costs. It may be an appropriate use of the revenue from any potential vacancy tax to reward the good actors in the city who are putting land to productive use, perhaps through financial incentives for developing or renting vacant land, or for rent relief for small businesses. No doubt, much of this cost will be recouped in tax revenue. Regardless, to best achieve the city's goal of putting vacant land to productive use, we should use every tool available, and that means using rewards too, not just punishments. Thank you. Our next speaker is Robert Copeland, followed by Jonathan Cook. What's taking the city so long? It should have been done years ago. Why did Eric Garrett and Rick James propose it when they first became city council members since they've been on the longest? Why? This is a good idea. Uh, reward the good actors, punish the bad actors. There's a, I was walking to a city council today uh, between 10th and 11th and J Street. There's like a whole block that's almost vacant for years. I don't understand. That's lost jobs, lost housing that can be built, lost tax revenue. Uh, Any money collected should go to uh, help people renovate their property or uh, promote Sacramento. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Our next speaker is Jonathan Cook, followed by Matt McDonald. Uh, good morning, Jonathan Cook, Executive Director of the Sacramento Housing Alliance. As we know, Sacramento and our state are experiencing an unprecedented housing crisis, and uh, this is particularly affecting our communities of color and our lowest income residents in Sacramento. We are hoping that we can uh, recommend and urge you to vote yes on staff recommended option B, uh, which would allow us to preserve and build additional affordable housing. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Our next speaker is Matt McDonald, followed by Aaron Teague. Good morning. I'm Matt McDonald with the California Apartment Association, uh, speaking in opposition to the creation of a vacancy tax in Sacramento. We have general concerns about the chilling effect of new taxes on any businesses in the city. I'm sure none of you are surprised by that. Um, we want to point out why this discussion item is particularly disconcerting. 
You have made no distinction between dormant parcels and developed parcels. You're painting all property owners with a broad brush. Every member of the council has proclaimed their dedication to increased housing, but let's look for a moment at the, what, what the city has done recently. Uh, the city council has already placed a business moderniz modernization tax increase on the March ballot. Uh, storm drainage fees on businesses were approved by the council in October. And this afternoon, the city council will hear a potentially disastrous proposal for inclusionary zoning that could have devast a devastating effect on the investment in the city. And we are contemplating here a new tax on vacancy. From our perspective, the city is not cre creating a, a uh, new pro-housing environment. Instead, you're sending the message to the people that, will, that you will count on to invest, build, and operate new businesses here. They will face a, a slew of new increased costs if they want to do business here. Uh, plus, many of the existing blight, blighted businesses and homes aren't vacant because those owners don't want the businesses to be successful. They're vacant because those businesses are struggling to survive for a variety of reasons. The message you're sending to those businesses is, we don't care why you're struggling. We want our cut. This city should not be in the practice of, uh, practice of kicking businesses' owner, owners when they're down. CAA urges this committee to stand with small business, not against them. Create real incentives, not penalties. Do not send this to the voters. Do not move this proposal out of committee. Don't send it back for more study. Reject this proposal today. Thank you for your comment. Our next speaker is Aaron Teague, followed by Keon Bliss. Good morning, Chair Valenzuela and committee members. Erin Teague on behalf of the Sacramento Association of Realtors. Um, today, after reviewing the staff report, when you compare the 3,671 vacant lots to the 451 uh, vacant buildings, the vacant lots stand out as, as the largest issue for the city. And if blighted and unkept properties are the concern, instead of a tax, the sh city should consider using the current tools it has through code enforcement and its vacant lot program to create a process that creates opportunities for owners to understand their options through resources and zoning, not another tax measure that we have to take to the voters. Many times, vacant lots are cost prohibitive to build on or have restrictions that create extra hurdles that need to consideration. We should be encouraging city staff to work and reach out to those vacant lot owners and figure out what is stopping them from developing those vacant properties. SAR has acknowledged many times that we understand Sacramento has a housing crisis, but when, when, when we continue to see restrictions and costs added to the process, it deters development, therefore making the current housing market even more impacted. Therefore, SAR requests to be part of the conversation that works together to find solutions for blighted and unkept vacant properties through programs that can spur economic growth and not through an additional tax measure. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Our last speaker on the item is Keon Bliss. Greeting, City Council. Uh, really appreciate this thoughtful proposal uh, on how to make best use of the numerous vacant lots that are surrounding um, both Sacramento and uh, deep in the heart of Sacramento City as well. Um, everybody here is aware and, and understands that there is a crisis that we have been dealing with for a number of years with people uh, struggling to keep the roof over their heads and many of whom, thousands of whom, are forced to live on the streets and many of whom die 
every year by the hundreds um, for no other reason than they are exposed to the elements and don't have a, like affordable access to basic services. That cannot continue on and thank, and frankly, we need to be, like we should have been doing this vacancy proposal yesterday. Because I know like just in my neighborhood around Southside Park, there are multiple vacant lots that could actually keep people uh, housed and uh, could, uh, where people could actually be safe and wouldn't have to be camping on people's lawns or in medians uh, or in other places that I hear uh, business owners and uh, NIMBY property owners across the, across the county complaining and whining about, frankly, um, over and over again while simultaneously shuffling them into other people's backyards. So I really look forward to the uh, deeper consideration of this and also want to remind um, our elected representatives, uh, especially given that the uh, California Apartment Association and the California Realtors Association both are opposing this measure. Um, there are uh, at least two of you that have accepted no less than $12,000 from CAA and $12,000 from CAR, that's from District 1, and uh, District 6 council member has accepted at least $18,150 and $11,200 from CAR um, for, uh, within the last cycle. So really want to keep that uh, in mind and, and focus because that is... Your time is now complete. Thank you for your comments. Chair, I have no more speakers on the item. Thank you. I want to thank um, everybody for coming in to weigh in on this. And I really want to just take a brief moment to appreciate um, the Metro Chamber's talking points on this, sort of recognizing that there's an issue that needs to be addressed and um, really contributing a good idea in terms of how the funds would be used to help offset any impact of this tax on those property owners. Because um, I've noticed, I mean, I've only been on the council a couple years, but what keeps happening is certain stakeholders keep coming forward saying, no, not this. Let's think of another idea. Let's think of another idea. But like they never come forward with those ideas. Um, so I think it's really important to recognize that sometimes there aren't viable alternatives and maybe this is probably the best way and we should work on figuring out how to tailor things to make the most sense for our multiple policy goals. Um, you know, vacant properties have a real impact on communities, including mine, um, and I'm not just by being a magnet for things we don't want to see in our community, but also in terms of stopping new development, both for interim things like safe camping and for longer term projects like housing and business development. So I want to just start the conversation before I turn to my colleagues just by thanking staff for your research on this and all of the work you did to look at other cities. I want to thank the changes that you made to make this more equitable based on lot size. Um, and I'm really interested in a discussion about fund use. We know we need affordable housing and infrastructure investments. I think the idea about creating some resources for those lot owners and property owners to be able to help develop them into productive use is a really great one because um, we know sometimes there can be real barriers to addressing that. Um, I'm also interested in hearing a discussion maybe about geographic limitation on where the funds can be used. I don't know how we would implement that, but I do think in other cases, when it comes to development fees or other things, we do tend to not completely restrict where they use, but try to say, hey, this, this tax money came from a property in District 1. It should go into investments in that same community since they're the ones impacted by that issue. Um, so that's something. But I'm very interested in option two and would love to hear my colleagues' thoughts on that. Um, we'll start with Vice Mayor Eric Guerra and then go to Councilmember Kaplan. Great. Thank you, Madam Chair. <clears throat> First, I want to thank staff as well. Um, I want to go back down uh, memory lane a, a bit, and this, uh, this all kind of uh, part of these issues tie together, uh, including last week's converse conversation about focusing on some of our commercial corridors and areas that have had lack of, uh, of development. And so if, if we go back, I want to credit, you know, um, 
uh, Councilmember uh, Chenier and myself, uh, uh, you know, I appreciate his his work on this. We we worked with staff and code enforcement to first start the, the question about what uh, what to deal with the issue of blighted vacant lots. Uh, you go down Stockton Boulevard or Franklin or Del Paso, Marysville Boulevard. These areas become places for illegal dumping. Uh, you know, at, at the time, people would actually drive on there and do donuts and do other things. Uh, and uh, and really impact the, the businesses uh, adjacent to them, and so because of that, we started the uh, to figure out well let's let's get the data first before we just start moving on this. And we had code enforcement trying to play whack a mole with who the owners were, and so we created the vacant lot ordinance um, at that point. And the and then the registry, and the registry helped us identify where those who were the property owners, how we could better connect with them, how could we better resolve those issues. And so I do want to first credit staff and all of their work in actually getting to that point. Um, the reason I bring this up because it's what is the end goal in mind here? We should keep that uh, in conversation about what we're trying to accomplish, and that is to help encourage and motivate um, uh, activity and to not allow uh, uh, you know vacant lots or, or property that is unused uh, to... Uh, um, to be used as either uh, a, uh, a tax benefit or a way to claim a loss in, in reducing someone's tax liability uh, and to actually get, um, get that property moving forward. We know there are many folks who have held on to those properties for a long time, which is why they've been vacant. Some have been vacant because of uh, issues of contamination. Like in these areas, we had gasoline stations, dry cleaners during a time when there was very little environmental review. And so the, they are much more expensive um, to uh, clean up and develop. So I think all of those contexts are, are important of, of how we started getting to this conversation about addressing vacant lots. A couple things, though, that I think uh, that we should uh, can, uh, can, that I want to I want to put that on the on the on the side right now. Uh, and uh, and uh, one recognizing that at least what uh, our understanding in the development of that ordinance was that some folks were using uh, their vacant lots to claim a loss and then keeping the the lots to use as a 1031 exchange again to be able to uh, reach a tax benefit uh, and that that is an unfortunate um, a damage to the adjacent business owners and to those corridors, commercial corridors that we're trying to revitalize. So I want to I want to recognize that piece. But when I looked at the staff report and saw what the impacts were and and the scope of of uh, uh, on the residential and storefront side, um, I I agreed to the comment that was made earlier at some that someone said that not all the properties are created equal, even vacant lots itself aren't equal based on those that are in commercial corridors versus those that are industrial areas and ag land areas. Uh, industrial areas where uh, they have a different time horizon on when to develop and when they're going to build out an area, much like the uh, power in corridor and, uh, and even areas in, in the north area that are much more industrial, um, can't be compared to, I think, the same challenges that the commercial corridors are. Uh, I think there are two different scenarios there. Uh, when it comes to housing and vacant storefronts, uh, at least in my conversation with uh, property owners and uh, uh, and those who have been trying to uh, uh, you know improve their vacant storefront, most of them in at least on the uh, in my district 
Um, they've had issues with cash flow to try to be able to move that forward. By adding a tax and affecting their cash flow during a time of high interest rates and the ability to get lending, um, I see that as a significant challenge. Uh, and so uh, I do think that the storefront um, uh, tax doesn't make sense, particularly not now in this, in this high tax environment. And the vacancy rate that we have right now, even on residential, um, you know, is uh, it, that's not the, the challenge that we have. Uh, the, in fact, it's important to have a small amount or a, a healthy amount of vacancy to allow uh, folks to transition from the one type of unit to a larger unit as their family grows or as their needs change. If we had zero vacancy as well, then that doesn't allow for people to be able to move, uh, move around. Um, and when we have zero vacancy and we do have one unit that becomes available, that inflates the cost of the demand for that vacancy. So I, I see the, the vacancy tax on, uh, on rental, multifamily, or even single family as counterproductive to our goals of managing housing costs. Um, now, the revenue, so are we trying to solve a problem with vacant land or are we simply trying to collect revenue? I think you know those are those uh, are two different policy goals, and sometimes conflating the two, um, you know, can be problematic. So I don't. I think that we want to make sure moving forward that that we are focused on uh, on what's the end in mind here. I do agree with the concept that the the chamber brought up that if there is a uh, a type of revenue source that um, it go to support the good actors. Uh, and, uh, and I'll just say from an experience on a property that has been vacant for a long time, it was uh, a SHRA property, it was never developed, finally it's been cleaned up, uh, and when they're ready to go, uh, interest rates and the cost of construction of materials changed the pro formas. And so to now add a vacancy tax on that vacant lot while they've put together um, entitlements, um, I think it, it goes, again, counterproductive. So we need to figure out if we were to move forward on anything, uh, we need to figure out what are the restraints on that. So at least for my, mem my, my uh, colleagues here on the council, uh, I would say uh, if there is anything to move forward or forward out of this committee, it can only be option A. Uh, and even with that, it has to be guardrailed so that it's focused on those priority areas. Uh, I like the con the concept that the chair said as, you know, maybe the, the funding goes also to those priority areas so that we're maximizing on our commercial corridors where we can improve transportation, where we can increase the FAR, and frankly, sometimes where the infrastructure costs are higher. So um, at least for me, um, uh, uh, I think that there, uh, the, that the, the timing of this, given the challenges of development, is pretty significant and definitely uh, no on the storefront or residential side. Thank you, um, Madam Chair. Vice Mayor, if I could just clarify, because I think the difference between option B and C, option B is talking about like 100% vacant buildings, so like multifamily, like all the units are vacant and they're just not using it, like the buildings at 10th and J that somebody mentioned versus like the units, which is in option C. So I just want to make sure that your position carries across both. Yeah, no, it's it's all of housing and storefront and just vacant lots. Because okay, at least so for me, my priorities have been, always been how do we actually get development moving okay. forward on that. So. Okay, just wanted to clarify based on your comments. Thank you. Um, Councilmember Kaplan. 
Thank you, Chair. Uh, thank you to my colleague, Eric Ayer, for starting this off staff. Um, so this was an early discussion of me just jumping on uh, as a council member. So I appreciate um, your comprehensive and, and thoughtful approach to giving us as much information as possible. Um, again, I go to uh, what my colleague kind of brought up. Um, what is the problem? And is this the solution? to the problem we're trying to address. If it's uh, production of more housing, is this the answer to get more housing? Um, again, I'll go, I think it's a great analogy, carrot stick. And then if this is the answer to get more housing and redirect income so it comes in for more affordable housing, is there, uh, has there been an analysis, um, an impact analysis done that this will actually solve what we're trying to solve? So I think that, those are some of the things for me that are missing right now um, that I, I don't feel like I know that if we go down this route, this is actually going to solve the problem we're attempting to solve. And then overarching, I want to ask the question, no matter what we do today, does this have to go to the voters? Yes. It has to go to the yes. voters. And by what percentage does the, do the voters have to pass this? Two-thirds. Two-thirds. So um, one of my concerns, um, no matter what we decide or want to go forward with, um, our staff time is precious. They're doing the 2040 general plan, the climate action update. They're doing just minor things. Um, so this is a conversation worth having, but I also want to be mindful and respectful of our staff time. Because of polling, we go out and we just test different ABC, different options, and it all comes back that not one of them is close to two-thirds. Then what are we doing talking about this? Because we're talking about something that we're actually never going to get to the answer of a solution. You know, for me, it feels a little bit more of this is good information. I think it's a good frame. But I ask, is this the right time? Is there an impact analysis of what this will do and will this actually solve if the goal is housing? Is this going to solve getting us more affordable housing and housing faster? Um, and then um, taking a further step back, if we decide going to voters right now, is it time to take a look at the vacant lot program, which you guys were part of and passed in 2018, and what can we do to look at that? Because then does that get to the vacant lots and incentivizing the carrot stick of incentivizing development? Because one of the things about the current proposal that has me extremely concerned, um, when you look at your analysis where it talks about the three potential vacancy tax options, it says there are over 3,600 privately owned vacant lots in the city. And then I go to um, attachment number one, uh, map one that says privately owned vacant parcels by council district and district one has 804. But one of the things I think that number is significantly lower because you've mentioned that there are no parcels in the panhandle, which was added into the city, which has got, you know, over a thousand parcels that are going to be coming in. So my question goes to also where um, council member Guerra, if it really is about vacant lots, let, there's a difference. There's vacant lots with proposed development, and then there's vacant lots that have sat empty for years. So for me to even say that I am open to consideration, 
we know that housing is a priority. If somebody's already got plans in to the city and it's going forward, we know that development's coming. Any tax cannot apply to any of those parcels coming forward. Then what does it do to our, our revenue? Where, where are we actually, what are we actually attacking? What are we, what are we looking at? Um, and is a tax gonna spur development? But then I also take a step back because I come from the education world and I know that in the state of California, the Office of Public School Construction has a vase, vacant parcel, I think after a certain amount of time, districts are required to pay a fee on land that they own that is slated for potential development. Um, anecdotally and personally, uh, I was a school board member, many know for 20 years. When I got on board, there was a piece of land that the district had purchased like a year or two prior to me joining the board. We just opened up a school on that land. For 20 years, we looked at different development. Um, we had the flood moratorium, we had growth, it was shrinking. We had to look at, did we have, we had to pass a bond, was there state matching funds? So for 20 years, the district paid a, a, a nominal fee, but a small fee on that because we needed time to figure out the timing, the money, did we need it? Um, you know, and it finally just opened uh, this past, uh, this August for, for the school year, you know, 20 some odd leaders after owning the piece of land. Where is that balance? And then also looking at what does the Office of Public School Construction charge school districts? You know, where is that balance in that? I know it's a little different when you look at other cities, but I think it's important um, that we look at potentially all, all measures in that. So um, any discussion today we have, I don't want staff to spend a lot of time on this until we get polling. I, I truly, honestly, if it comes back and the public says it's a no-go, then I think we have to, that's something I'd wanna have come back and we balance where do we go um, from here or is this a story we slowly start building and looking at 2026? And then going back, how do we, what problem are we solving? Like, if it's housing, is this the problem? Then going, what we also discussed, looking at all of the fees that we are trying to come up to date with on what we charge in Sacramento. Um, this should be one of them. That's part of that comprehensive review on all the different costs. So I personally, while I want to address the problem and some of it I think is our blighted properties and really getting those who are negligent uh, owners to spur it. We shouldn't be touching residential plan lots coming in. I think that that takes us a step backward. But first and foremost, what do the voters say? For me, I need to know where our voters at because I wanna respect our staff time. Um, you've got, we've got a lot of on our plate and I wanna make sure we're headed in the right direction. And if the polling comes back that we could potentially have some avenues of options I am totally open to working on that. If the vote comes back and the poll comes back, then why don't we look at our vacant lot program and where's the carrot and the stick and how we move forward with that. But right now I'm not ready to recommend any of the options, only going to the polls, to getting a poll to see where the voters are. Thank you, Councilmember. I wonder, um, Mr. City Attorney, if you would weigh in on that question. Are we allowed to use city resources to poll on potential ballot measures? And you might not know the answer and you can send us a memo later. I don't want to put you on the spot. 
Yeah, that's, I don't know the answer to that, but we can certainly look into it. That would be great. And maybe you can send a memo back to the members of the committee so we understand what our options are. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Vice Chair Jennings, go ahead. Thank you, Chair. Um, I want to thank staff on the work they've done as well. I, I thought this was really good work and had a chance to get briefed in my office. Um, appreciate the work that you've done. Um, I think it gives us the information we need in order to help us at this point in time. Um, so I heard my colleague talk about getting the polling first. And while I may agree with that, uh, and, and I, wouldn't go up, I wouldn't go against that, I also like the first step in your action plan that you have, which is the stakeholder outreach. Um, so if in fact, whether it's polling first and then stakeholder outreach, or stakeholder outreach first and then polling, I do think May is too late for the polling, um, and, and so therefore I would move it up based on my colleagues' points. Um, but I think it's really important to do the stakeholder outreach um, and make sure that we get to those different real estate professionals, development, community, property and business improvements districts, and the housing um, advocacy organizations and others. <laughs> that that may not be on this list, like the online community work groups that we're talking about having and the housing policy work group. So I think that's really important because if we're going to keep ask, asking the question, what problem are we solving, we've got to go to the source and find out what do they think is the solution for the problem. Um, and so for me to be able to separate the good actors from the bad actors, I'm trying to do that because when I look at the good actors who are not able to build on their property or move forward with construction on their property because of the cost of capital, because of the cost of land, because of the cost of construction, because of the interest rates, which is a part of the cost of capital, when I look at all those things that are hindering development, I don't want to be another hindrance. I, I don't want to add on to that. I don't want to be a person that says, okay, we're going to now tax you on top of all the things that you're going against right now. Um, I like that pro-housing designation. I want to keep that. And I don't know that what we're doing is going to help that. And so I think going out publicly to the stakeholders and getting the information from them as to what they feel may be the solution to the, to the question that we're asking, to the problem that we're trying to solve, would really be something that would help us. It wouldn't be just going to one person, but it'd be going to, to many. And so I'm, I'm much in favor of the polling. I'm also much in favor of the outreach to the community. And then somehow readjust this, this action plan so that we can still have it in time for the November uh, general election. Um, I think it's really important that we get that information out with the public get the information from the public and, and get it as quickly as possible so that we can find out, are we good teammates or are we on the opposite team trying to hurt uh, those who are on the other side of the equation? So um, I, uh, I think those are the key points I wanted to make at this point in time and in addition to the points that my colleagues had already, have already said. So uh, how do we, how would we differentiate Different, I can't even say that word anymore. How would we make sure that we understand the good actors from the bad actors? 
How would we do that? Um, yes. I was just going to say that I think that there's been really great recommendations um, from some of the committee members here and from um, some of our public comments that we've received on the exemption side. I think that's a really critical part of this. So um, I think there are opportunities for us to try to differentiate from, from those uh, in the exemptions that we create. Okay, I'll stop for now. Thank you. See where I, we are. I appreciate the comments and um, do want to say that, you know, something as simple as, well, you just bought the lot, so maybe you're trying to do something with it. So we're going to give you a couple years to figure it out before we come through with the tax would be one way, right? Um, I think the Councilmember Kaplan's point about projects in process was pretty clear in the staff report, but obviously if someone's actually taking steps and is designing things and has hired an architect and is actually doing the thing, like we wouldn't want to come through with them because they're actually trying to move a project. But um, I do appreciate the framing of the problem we're trying to solve because for me, vacant owners who sit on completely vacant buildings for years, <laughs> um, you know, this creates a cost incentive to maybe move. And we have so many examples of that in the central city. I know folks point to 10th and J, but there are so many more examples of completely vacant buildings that are just sitting there that are having an impact on the community because they're not being put into productive use. And it, goodness knows it's not because folks aren't interested in putting those parcels into productive use. Um, so that is one angle in terms of problem we want to solve. I also think uh, several of my colleagues have mentioned gap financing for projects, infrastructure investments. These are some of the barriers that we know we need to overcome. We hear it from the development community every day. We know we need money to help with that. Um, this option A alone could generate $17 million a year. Um, that is money that will go directly into construction of infrastructure, construction of housing, construction, and other types of improvements, and could be targeted in such a way to really target the areas where those vacant lots are so that we are fulfilling some sort of goal. We're not just taxing and then sending it to the general fund, but we're taxing and then investing in infrastructure on Stockton Boulevard and infrastructure in certain spots where then it would make the benefit of developing those vacant parcels better, right? Like I see a lot of ways that this makes sense. Um, and speaking for someone who represents the central city, I think it's important that we ask stakeholders about completely vacant buildings. I want to differentiate between what the vice mayor was saying in terms of like if a unit in a building goes vacant, because we talked about that last time. I appreciate where the committee is. I get it. Um, but like if it's a 100% vacant, you're not using electricity, you're not using water, it's been sitting there for more than two years. At some point, I want there to be some sort of um, to say, hey, either do something or give us some money so that we can start figuring out how to make something better happen in this community because it does have an impact on nearby businesses and nearby residents and we cannot ignore that um, because we see it happen over and over and over again. So I am still very interested in option B. I think if we're doing a stakeholder process, I would be curious to hear if people have other ideas for 100% vacant buildings in addition to 100% vacant lots because um, I think if that's the problem we're trying to solve, we should keep the different problems on the table and say, hey, we have a problem with vacant lots, obviously more in certain districts. We have a problem with vacant buildings more in certain districts. What are some of the ideas for how we can turn that into use? Because as I said, I'm I'm frustrated by people who just keep opposing things but don't come forward with ideas. You know, it's like, let's actually solve the problem. If we all accept that there's a problem and we have an opportunity to potentially, through this proposal, generate significant revenue that would also help us address these very problems, I don't understand how we can leave that on the table knowing what we need in terms of the communities. But um, I do await maybe the city attorney's opinion on whether we can do polling. Um, so that would be excellent. I don't know if staff has looked into that yet, but I know that there's like a line that crosses once we put something on the ballot where we don't allow to touch it. And I'm not sure how polling versus polling 
and informational polling. I know we do community surveys regularly, so I'm like, how do we frame, like maybe we don't call it polling, maybe we call it a community survey. <laughs> and maybe it helps with stakeholder outreach to say, hey, we're also gonna ask you questions about vacant buildings, vacant lots, and what you'd like to see done. Like there could be a way to sort of finesse, so I'll leave that with you, Mr. City Attorney, to help us figure out if and how. Um, but I will just say that um, I do wanna keep vacant buildings just on the stakeholder conversation tables and bring that back to us so that we can just hear if there's other ideas. Um, and maybe it's an idea that folks on the dais still aren't gonna be comfortable with, but I do think the full council eventually should be given the opportunity to weigh in once we feel like we have vetted these ideas, because it is an issue that comes up quite frequently in my district, speaking for myself, and, and I would really love to see those properties get turned into use. Um, because otherwise we pay for it on the back end when people break in, when people do other things there. So anyhow, clear as mud. Um, uh, Vice Mayor and then Councilmember Kaplan, and then we will move on this agenda here. So, um, and this is more maybe procedural. Uh, I did have one comment, but it's more procedural. I think the on the staff report is asking us to make a motion. Yeah, or? so I guess the motion could be to do some stakeholder outreach and come back to us on options. <laughs> A or B, are folks comfortable with that? I mean, we're not committing to option B, but just like what are some options on vacant buildings as well? It's something that, if it's not a vacancy tax, I know I would love to hear other ideas. And um, I think to Councilmember Kaplan's point, um, you know, the the polling, and, and, and I'm pretty sure in other JPAs we've done polling for... Um, we have, so, yeah. So, um, so yeah, but, but I think, uh, I, well, we should probably... Uh, you know, table the item until we know we can even move forward on on the polling, if that's a determinant factor. Um, uh, second, on the vacant lot side, just because, again, I, I appreciate staff's creativity, and we're trying to think about outside the box. That's how we came up with the registry, the vacant lot registry. Uh, but there is, uh, again, this is the challenge with the unintended consequences, and what I would not want to happen, even on the vacant lot side, um, you know, in my district, and this may be unique to District 6, but, you know, during the time of redlining, many families and many veterans' families could not buy um, north of Fruit Ridge. And so they bought large number of lots, you know, to be able to build housing for them and then for their future family, thinking that, you know, hey, this may never change. Now, fortunately, we've had advancements and legal fights and challenges to change that. But you have many families still who have a lot of those homes now with numerous lots. And even when we did the vacant lot ordinance, they were charged a fee uh, on top of that for something that really wasn't what was intended to, to resolve. So even if we were to go that route, I want to make sure we are being very cognizant of, again, the end in mind. What are the, what are the areas we're trying to track? Because I would hate that you know, uh, some of these families um, in uh, in Southeast Sac, all of a sudden receive a, a a new tax for something that they've always managed, they've always maintained, but on paper it comes off that way, and it's not that blighted property, you know, on Stockton Boulevard. So th those are, I think, the the key things. And maybe the motion would be to bring this back on our first meeting in 2024 with the city attorney's thoughts on polling and what we might need to do so we can act at that time. I think our first meeting is 116 January 16th. That would just, I don't know how much stakeholder outreach we would do between the holidays anyways, so we wouldn't. It sounds like based on the plan that, I'm sorry. It sounds based on the plan that they have, they wouldn't start outreach until January, yeah. February timeframe. Is that correct? Yeah. So maybe if we wait until January 16th, we can hear the city attorney's thoughts on polling and then on, make on it a taking action. 
Okay. So, I think Chair, that was more of where I was going to suggest because one of the things I, I'm, I don't have back from staff and I don't even know if is available is the impact analysis. Is like, if we do this, does, are there other examples of it spurring development or have other cities done this and it actually hasn't spurred development? That, that's part of my hesitation with even looking and recommending anything. So, um, but as just worth the squeeze, you know, um, so attachment five, when it looks at um, the proposed timeline and outreach, um, I think first and foremost, I agree with you, Chair. I'd like to have something come back so that I understand what our, we legally can do with, with outreach. And if we have information as well as um, potential impact analysis, do stakeholder outreach with all options on the table. I think if we go to stakeholders, we need to hear their feedback. They live it, they breathe it. Yeah, um, staff having time to do that, and then it come back to us for, is this even the right time to move forward in 2024? Um, or do we park it? Or is it, do we pivot and look at the vacant lot you know, because I want the, the vacant law ordinance on the table as well. Are there ways to potentially strengthen that that might actually get at some of the issues we're talking about? That's a slightly different motion. You're asking staff to basically move forward with stakeholder outreach and then come back to the committee. No, no, no. no. I want January. I want. I want. I January know Steve 16. is. Uh, no, Mr. No, no. has definitely is, punched is up this need, way in I here. I need to. I need to see if we can do polling because really, honestly, I think it's a waste of staff time. Okay. I know Mr. Adagaki punched up to speak so yeah just on that polling issue prior to putting the measure on the ballot we can do the polling okay okay well thank you that was a quick text exchange you did with your colleagues there I appreciate that <laughs> so um, so we're back to okay so we can do polling so we'd like staff to do polling first instead and then do a stakeholder outreach second and include the different options which is it's hard when there's like multiple options on the table to really get a decisive but I think there's a way to craft that and I'm sure there's lots of stakeholders who'd be interested in helping with that item so that is our motion is to poll on the package the whole kit and caboodle yeah, and see what the public thinks and then come back to us so that we understand what the public is thinking in terms of taxing vacant properties taxing vacant 100% vacant buildings um, do we want to keep units on the poll yeah after my housing so. units yeah, yeah. No. Um, I would love it, but the, I'm outvoted here. So we will say 100% uh, vacant buildings, vacant parcels, do the poll first. So we're basically reversing your proposed work plan here so that we have an idea of what the voters feel, and then we'll come back and talk about next steps. So that's the motion. I'll just... Second. Okay. Uh, I will say to the point that you made, uh, Vice Mayor, I do have a lot of sympathy for the families who own multiple properties in South Sac. I used to try to convince a lot of them to let me put gardens on those properties. Yeah. And that's part of the exemptions. I think staff has done a really good job of being clear that if you do something with this parcel, even if it's just have a community garden allowed there, because vacant properties do affect the community at large. Like, while I appreciate that they've owned that for 30, 40 years, you know, that's 30, 40 years that there isn't a housing unit on that parcel. That would be great for everybody in the community, probably. But there are also very thoughtful offers ramps to ensure that someone who is putting in good effort isn't being unduly punished. Um, so with that, the motion is pull first, then come back. All right. I just uh, want to, I just yes. want to understand, um, does the polling give us the impact analysis 
that Council Member Kaplan No, what Council Member Kaplan was asking for is basically more research on other cities mm -hmm. and what the, what impact their measure has had so, on their... So I just want to know, when does that come back? Does it come back to our first meeting in January? Does it come back? <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess the whole timeline needs to be now redone based on the decisions that we're making today? Does that make sense? Yeah, um, yes. So the one thing that um, I would say is we, we have had <clears throat> conversations with the city of Oakland. They're really the only jurisdiction that has been implementing their vacancy tax for you know uh, multiple years. Um, and they have not been able to give you know, give us a, a, a really solid answer on how their um, their tax has performed. They do have anecdotes of, you know, obviously seeing that property owners are trying to avoid the tax, whether that is, you know, movement of property, donating it to the city, um, trying to, you know, qualify for an exemption. So they're seeing it as a working incentive, but they don't have data on um, how that's impacted development of those vacant properties yet. Um, you know, we can always check in with them again, but um, it's, I think it's a difficult thing to predict. Um, and so, you know, I think the one clarifying question I have with that um, is whether we're going to do polling and then come back to count to committee and then conduct outreach or, okay, thank you. And polling first and then come back and tell us what the poll says and then, you know, we can talk about where we're at and what we want yes. as next steps. And, and Greta, just kind of to your question, um, while I appreciate having known that you've reached out to Oakland, um, is this unique only to California? Is California the only one that looks at a vacancy tax? Has it been done in other states, in other cities? So I think while we, every state is unique, if there is other information out yeah. there, um, to come please. back at the same time we get the polling information. Okay. Yeah, I think there's it's, quite a few examples in other cities outside of California that maybe are longer standing than Oakland's that would give us better data. So that's very good. Okay. So the motion and second is to do polling first and come back to us when that is done with more examples as amended to of other cities, even if they're outside of California. Where can we find good data of maybe more than a few years of implementation and see what this has done? So all in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed or abstentions? Measure passes unanimously. All right, more to come on that. All right, so we'll move on to item four. Elkinsville is going down there. You don't have to. Okay, that's fine. Um, so item four is the review and approval of the city's state and federal legislative platform and an oral report from our state lobbyist that I believe was requested by the vice mayor, among others. So Consuelo, take it away. All right, I will try to be succinct. Um, I'm here today to present the 2024 uh, draft legislative platform for the city. It is intended to guide our advocacy efforts. Um, and just kind of a very quick what what the platform does. If the city wishes to take a position on Just quickly, on a Cons Consuelo, before you. Sure. Is our lobbyist here? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, if the city wishes to take a position on a proposal or funding, we need law and ledge and committee approval. Um, the purpose of the platform is to kind of give sort of pre-approval on the issues included in this. Um, basically saying, yes, Law & Ledge has already looked at this, Council's already approved this. If something falls within the platform, we can go ahead and take a position on it, you know, after input from, um, from staff, from the Law & Ledge chair, from anyone else um, relevant. It is drafted to be general enough to give us flexibility, but it is focused on those policies that fall under the city's sphere of influence. 
Um, if an item is not included in the platform, we can still take a position on it um, after lawn ledge and council approval. Um, also, the mayor and council members are able to take positions in their individual capacity. Um, also wanted to clarify, I, I get questions about this every year, um, what the platform is not. It doesn't cover what the city should do. Um, as an example, while we would advocate for funding for homelessness, the platform wouldn't specify how the city would spend that funding. Um, you know, we want, that's a council decision, those sorts of what we do with, with updated laws, you know, um, additional funding is up to all of you and your colleagues. Um, the 2024 uh, platform has been updated with input from department staff, council, and our lobbyists, and it reflects those issues we anticipate will be considered next year. Um, it is based on last year's uh, platform with, again, some updates. Um, I feel like we're getting to the point where we've got most, uh, I, very few new issues pop up at this point. Um, uh, I am available for questions or feedback and request the committee approve and move the platform to council. Thank you. All right. I don't know if you want to give questions now or you want to. I think let's hear from the Let's state hear from the lobbyists. Then... All right. We have our state contract lobbyists here yeah. today to give a quick summary um, of this year's activities down the road um, and to discuss what they foresee for the state in 2024. And I'm happy to introduce Ross Buckley and McKinley Thompson Morley from California Advisors. Thanks, Consuelo. Good morning, uh, Madam, Madam Chair and Council Members. My name is Ross Buckley with California Advisors. I'm here to provide an update on what we saw this past legislative year and kind of what to expect or what we hope to expect maybe next year um, as we look forward. Uh, 2023 ended up being a pretty interesting year in the legislature. Uh, one of the main reasons it was so, uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement and, and maybe some anxiety depending on who you talk to at the beginning of this year is that we had almost upwards of 30 new members in the, in the legislature. Last year, we had a number of uh, SING members decide not to run for re-election or run for other office, and what many people in the, in the papers and in news called the mass exodus of the California State Legislature. So there are a lot of new faces um, coming to Sacramento this year, and a lot of those folks didn't have even local elected experiences or track records that we could kind of uh, estimate where they would be on certain issues, where we had worked with members for 10 years and we kind of knew where they were on positions and specific issues. Uh, that was not necessarily the case this year. And so I think it was a, it was a learning process for all involved and all of those um, working in and around the legislature as we got to know these new members and where they stood. Um, you know, I will note going into next year, we have the March primary uh, with just around the corner from now. We're expecting another kind of large turnover in the legislature in 2024. So we'll have a, a number of new faces uh, back in 2025 um, to be determined on how, the extent of that. But it, right now it's looking like a, a fairly large number of turnover yet again next year. Um, this year in 2023 was also unique because we saw two uh, legislative leadership changes. One being the speaker, Robert Revis, assumed the speakership in the end of June this year. Um, that could kind of come to conclusion over a years long process. Um, just two weeks ago, he announced his new committee chairs and some of his leadership team. So that was um, big news and it puts a um, little bit more uh, finality to him putting his kind of top people in positions of um, top policy positions. Um, we expect full committee changes to be 
put out before the end of the year. I've heard some rumors, don't hold me to it, that could be as early as this week, but we know how those work. So, um, but by end of the year, we expect full committee changes to be out. And then at the end of August, uh, it was announced that Senator Mike McGuire from Sonoma will be uh, the next pro tem in the Senate. And as of, I believe it was yesterday, it was just announced that that transition will take place on February 5th of, of uh, next year. So some exciting times in the legislature and uh, two pretty big changes in, in legislative leadership. Um, kind of stepping back for a second and where we are in the legislative process, we just completed the first year of a two-year session. So when we legislators come back in the beginning of January, we will be in what is referred to as the two-year bill process. So those bills are introduced in their house that need to move to the other house before the end of January. So they're coming back to a pretty packed schedule um, already in January, and there'll be bills moving pretty early in the year this year. Once we get past that deadline, there'll be time to introduce new bills. There'll be thousands of bills introduced over the next uh, fe you know, February, March, and, and amended in April um, that we'll, we'll work with staff and with yourselves to get positions on and, and work to, to refine. Uh, a couple key issues that we see moving forward, uh, one is obviously the state budget. That's been a hot topic around Sacramento this last couple of days because the Independent Legislative Auditor or Analyst Office put out their report uh, December 1st, essentially saying that over the next three-year window, we have a $58 uh, billion deficit. So that's quite a, quite a bit of, quite a large deficit that we'll have to manage and the state, the state will have to make a number of difficult and hard decisions on how we kind of come and, and balance that budget. Um, I will note that there's a lot of issues within how that affects uh, legislation this year. The governor, I believe he vetoed um, 156 bills, and in 64 of those veto messages, he referenced the state budget being one of the issues of why he vetoed those bills. So the state budget has a lot of impact on even policy bills in the legislature. Um, I will also say that, you know, thanks to many of you on the dais and other council members and, and city staff, one of, the, one of the real successes we've had in the state budget is through what's called the member request process and working with our local delegation members to draw down resources for the city and for, uh, and for critical projects and infrastructure. Um, we look to continue to, to build on that success we've had over the last several years and continue that in 2024, even though in a down budget year, um, we'll have to get creative probably and, and, and fight for all those, but that's something we look forward to working on uh, with all of you in the, in the upcoming year. Uh, the other big one is kind of the housing and homeless money. There's been a billion dollars allocated statewide. Uh, a portion of that going directly to cities. That'll be another big issue that we will be working on in the, in the upcoming year that's been a priority for the administration and for the legislature. So um, as we continue to go down those roads, the conversations have really turned to accountability. There's been incentive dollars for, for folks who hit certain benchmarks and targets. So um, we'll continue to work on that and ensure that the money is also flexible and, and to meet kind of the needs of, of cities as well. Um, in kind of down revenue years, I will point out that there's a number of, uh, whether it's either climate-related bonds that are being proposed and talked about next year or greenhouse did GGRF funds or any other alternative revenue sources, they always kind of get looked at as flexible dollars to help fill gaps. So that's something that uh, we should be on the lookout for and, and, and you know, make sure that those are aligning with the city's goals as we move forward into, into next year. Um, a couple of other issues I want to touch base on is the housing and homelessness. Obviously, it's a top priority of the state. It's been a top priority of the state for a number of years now. Um, I think 
the city has been a leader in kind of the housing conversation and in zoning and adaptive reuse and many other things that we've worked on it. Um, I sometimes like to, to, to talk to Consuelo about this is that sometimes these assembly members and senators have kind of two points of reference. They're, their home districts and uh, Sacramento because they're up here for four or five days a week for you know, eight, nine months of the year. And so they get to kind of see what's going on in Sacramento. And so we've been able to help out and have a lot of conversations about what the C is doing on a housing level and a zoning level to um, you know, show the, the good work that you and uh, others have, have done. Um, the other issue is public safety. Uh, there's a lot of conversations about public safety this past year. Um, you know, whether it was firearm related and kind of curbing firearms, uh, the city support a couple of bills, SB2 to kind of uh, work on concealed carry permits, uh, AB28, which was a bill by Assemblymember Gabriel, but put an excise tax on ammunition. Uh, so there's a lot of issues that we worked on. Obviously, fentanyl was a big issue this year that we'll have to continue to work on uh, next year. And um, sideshows was another issue that has, has come to people's attention across the state as an issue to kind of work on. Uh, in the public safety realm, I do have some good news that uh, Assemblymember McCarty from Sacramento has just been appointed the uh, Assembly Public Safety Chair. So he'll be uh, providing leadership in that in that role and, and uh, being able to provide some of the, the city of Sacramento's insights as he makes uh, statewide policy. So very exciting. Um, I want to pass over to my colleague McKinley to talk a little bit more. Hello there, good morning, Chair and members. Um, so I'm going to provide a quick update on relevant cannabis policy, what we saw last year, and what we might expect to see in the coming year. So last year we saw the legislature put forth a number of cannabis bills related to things like equity, licensing, some bills related to employee testing, prohibiting that in a number of, of ways, and, consume, and expanding consumer information and more. The governor signed bills to expand equitable licensing, increasing consumer information, require development of testing for various products. And on the equitable licensing front, the governor signed SB 51, a Senator Bradford bill, that would allow the Department of Cannabis Control to issue provisional licensing to equity applicants for up to five years, and with the allowance, the allowance to renew those after that five years is up. In his signing statement, the governor said that the measure didn't go far enough to address uncertainty or local permitting challenges, and so we might see additional work in this, in this area in the coming year. Um, he said he wants to work with the legislature on longer-term solutions, and we know from advocates that this will be a priority in the future. On the tax front, you might recall that in 2022, Governor Newsom suspended the cultivation tax. However, we've heard from advocates that he's not, like, not interested in pursuing additional reforms in the coming years. Last year, a bill by Senator Bradford, which would have decreased taxes on cannabis, stalled in the assembly, sort of reflecting that. While there is some conversation around local jurisdictions making changes to taxes, whether that's um, pausing them for a period of time or making other changes, we don't expect any action at the state level um, because it's not a priority for the governor this year. There are a few other areas where there are conversations. That includes things like enforcement and other, other processes like making um, the cultivation greener, related to water, et cetera. We will keep an eye on those in the coming year, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, thank all three of you so much. Uh, a lot of really important issues and a lot of uncertainty, I think, is the theme of the moment right now as we look at 2024. But um, I will first go to public comment if we have any, Madam Clerk. Thank you, Chair. We have no public comment for this. Okay, moment. awesome. Then we'll turn to our committee members, Vice Mayor. 
Uh, thank you very much, Madam Chair. First, uh, thank you uh, for your advocacy and your work. I'll, I'll start off on the cannabis side, and uh, you know, even though the the the, the governor maybe has taken a public position on the, on the tax front. Uh, I think it's imperative that our uh, advocates for the city continue to push on that on that side. I mean, clearly, it's the the high percentage at the ta at the state level that's impacting um, the uh, the industry, and so and I think it's un uh, unfair, obviously, to push the burden on the on the local entities where we have the local additional cost of enforcement and regulation and permitting on top of that. So, you know, um, I mean, I, I think Councilmember Kaplan and I have spent, and ex Councilmember Valenzuela have spent a lot of years uh, um, in, in that building and, uh, in, and many times between governors. And so I think regardless of what the governor's position is, it's, it's imperative that um, the legislature continue to advocate a concern for um, uh, for uh, for its, uh, its constituents, so uh, I, I would request you know that our team continue to highlight that aspect because uh, the impacts of it are, are dramatic to, to the city's general fund. So um, the 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 second piece I'll, I'll bring up uh, very briefly, and I want to thank um, all my colleagues here on the issue of side on sideshows, and also um, our uh, senator Senator Ashby. I think that. Uh, most recently, we had um, you know another fatality from an accident and in um, just vehicle accidents in general in, in Councilmember Jennings district, and uh, all of us have been facing uh, the unfortunate, uh, irresponsible nature of folks who use their vehicles, um, and it's resulted in not only you know in, uh, people being injured, but the damage to public property and and uh, and private property. Um, I think uh, figuring out a good solution on, on that and I, uh, is, is critical. It's something that all of us are facing, and frankly, these sideshows go between jurisdictions, so it's not a localized issue. They'll, they start usually mostly time in the unincorporated area into the city and then go to Elk Grove as well. Um, so I, I'd like to highlight that piece. And then on the housing side, um, obviously, we, you know, uh, one, I want to recognize, you know, our mayor uh, as well in his, uh, his uh, uh, steadfast advocacy for more funding and then your efforts in, in the legislature for uh, both on the housing and on the not only the, the housing uh, uh, itself, but also on the services side, whether it's HAP funding or whatnot. But uh, w there's one niche that uh, that I it's, you know, it's been a uh, it's that that has been my issue at least, uh, but it does fall within our platforms. And we have two very strong positions on obviously advocating for housing, but also another adv uh, advocating for resources for childcare. Because we know when we support childcare and we make childcare available to families, they're able to go to work, they're able to provide security for their family. Uh, and one of the unintended consequences of um, the way that the tax credit system has come up, and uh, and I want to just put this on your radar, is that when uh, we had a project on Stockton Boulevard apply for tax credits, it became uncompetitive because they were going to add a child care center on site. And that meeting our greenhouse goals by reducing VMT, also making it easier for parents to be able to drop their kids off and immediately use public transit to get to work or other routes. Um, the, the project became uncompetitive to others. So I, I, I would ask that uh, since it falls in our platform and if there's exploration in our conversation in, in how tax credits are being discussed, that, that you know, if you have something that supports a family's economic mobility like access to child care, which we know Federal Head Start will cover the cost of 
operation and maintenance and, and for those working families, um, that, that the tax credit system actually bump up the bonus on, on, a, on, a, uh, in a, on a project like that. It's not just about building the housing. It's about building the resources to move people out of poverty into the middle class. So um, I'll stop there, Madam Chair, and I think those three points on the cannabis side, the sideshow, and on the, um, uh, on the housing tax credit side are things I just wanted to highlight. Our platform is very, very thorough, and I, I, I know there's a lot motion, there. Vice Mayor? Say again? That a motion? Yes, that's a motion. Yeah, yeah you know, thank, thank you. you. Uh, Councilmember Kaplan. Thank you. Uh, nice to meet you. Want to ask a couple of fundamental questions because while I've worked in this industry and I know this, I think it's also important. Why do we hire lobbyists? Why are we paying lobbyists? What's the purpose? Um, I would say I'm a one-woman show. We'll start with that. Um, uh, but mostly just we need the additional firepower. We are one of the largest cities in the state that is the fifth largest economy. Um, they bring a level of expertise and, to be quite honest, access that um, is really needed to, to promote um, our positions, to draw down funding. As, um, as they mentioned, we have been very successful recently in drawing down not only state member requests and other funding um, on the federal level, we've been pretty successful with earmark funding as well. Um, so I will say that the money, if you even just look at some of the member request money, it has more than covered the cost of hiring our lobbyists. Well, I, I think it's important asking the questions. Yeah, uh, exactly. Having been a lobbyist before, yep. one time in my career, I understand it, but I think like the general public doesn't Absolutely. necessarily mm -hmm. understand what is the purpose. Yes. Why are we paying these individuals? Um, also, did I miss, do we get an end of year report from our lobbyists? We have not since I've been here. I'm happy to, we can. It's something I used to do. Okay. For my clients. All right. I think it's something we should request. If we've taken positions on bills, the city of Sacramento, we should know uh, what is, where, what did we take a position on? What funding did we get? Okay. Um, I think that level of accountability, well, I hear you and trust you, the mm -hmm. return on dollars, um, I think we owe the public. Uh, that level of transparency okay. to show uh, what, where are our priorities uh, and what have we, have we gotten. Um, just to follow up on something that is kind of mentioned um, uh, by way in, in our platform, but something to pay attention to, um, it's cross-jurisdictional support. So um, I know this having spent a lot of time as a school board member, but it is something that uh, the California School Board Association is putting forward that we need to start working. Um, it's using empty lots and empty schools for workforce housing. And how do we streamline that? Because that is another layer of when we look at some districts, some schools have closed, how can we streamline the process that local jurisdictions can work together so that increases the possibility for uh, another avenue of using land for housing? Um, there are barriers at the state level that do not make it easy that I think it's something we should be cognitive of because uh, Sac City has closed some schools um, and there is, um, if you look at the birth rate in California, it's going down. So most districts are going to, uh, Twin Rivers, others uh, may be uh, in certain areas looking to close schools and some of the, and I think that's a 
prime opportunity to look at how do we increase housing, especially potentially uh, workforce housing and others. Uh, you know, what can we do to make that work faster? Um, I will bring up why I'm a little different than my colleagues. I think locally um, we could be moving forward with our sideshows. I think it is uh, a sham to say we have to wait for the state level to do something on sideshows. I know our CHPA, CHP is in charge of that and there are things that I am meeting with them that we at the city could do better that I think we need to move forward and it is a misnomer to say we have to wait uh, for the state to get involved for sideshows, this is a local issue. So just something our colleagues and I see see differently. And then on the equal rights for all Sacramento residents, mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate um, keeping it vague, but let's be real, equal rights, women don't have equal rights, LGBTQIA don't have equal rights. And I get it says equal rights for all Sacramentans, I don't really worry about our white men. We need to call it out for what it is. Um, women are the ones that experience domestic violence, housing, finance, childcare. Um, I think we need to be more specific. I did ask that. I understand how you say it's vaguely uh, called out. I don't believe in vaguely calling it out. Uh, we need to call out that women and children are disproportionately uh, harmed with the economy and everything else and domestic violence. Um, and our, as well as our LGBTQIA uh, community. And those are just some of the things that are important to me that I think we need to, need to not tiptoe around but call out specifically. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and I know I have the pleasure of working with Consuelo and the team a lot since I get to send the bills uh, letters for the city. So I hope I encourage any of my colleagues who might be listening to this or on the dais if you want to have more conversations. I know they're always open to chatting more about what's going on at the Capitol. So thank you all for this. Uh, do we have a second on the Vice Mayor's motion to approve? Thank you, Vice Chair. All in favor, please say aye. aye. Any opposed? Abstentions? The measure passes unanimously. Thank you all. Thank you. Look forward to working with you again this year. Um, and with that, we will bring up Greg for our next item, item five. I would love to remind my colleagues we still have one more item after this, and budget and audit starts at one. So um, Greg does fantastic work. I know he's been briefing all of us before this, so I hope we can make it quick. Thank you, Greg. Certainly can, yes. Uh, good afternoon, Chair Valenzuela. Members of the committee, Greg Sandlin, Planning Director, happy to present the 2024 Planning and Zoning Work Program today uh, for the committee's consideration. Um, presentation overview will provide background on the overall process of developing the program, some of the accomplishments of last year, and some of the highlights um, for this next coming year. Um, in terms of the program process, we start in September to get initial um, comments by the Planning and Design Commission. Then in November, they forward the work program to council. Right now, law and legislation is considering, considering the program, and then council approves the work program in January. Um, some of the key accomplishments, our public review draft 2040 general plan, climate action plan came out this year, received thousands of comments from the public, and we have just confirmed our uh, final changes to the plan and adaptation plan um, Action climate action adaptation plan uh, just last week at the Planning Design Commission um, launched ADU permit ready plans, received various grants for infrastructure um, as well as a pro housing pilot um, grant, and then also we received the uh, award of excellence for community ambassador program for the uh, American from the American Planning Association. Some of the things we've initiated is updating our parking requirements, the River District specific plan update, 
and um, uh, changes to our uh, zoning code pertaining to special needs housing, which I can elaborate on a little bit um, later. Work that was not anticipated last year was tenant policy research, um, city county SHRA affordable housing plan, as well as a vacant property tax research, which we just discussed today. And so here are some key highlights. Um, per the committee's direction last year, uh, we've organized um, the initiatives by topic or geography, so citywide policy, housing policy, and the like. So in terms of citywide policy, um, moving ahead with our general plan as indicated, and we hope to have a final hearing on that on the general plan in February of next year. Um, responding to state legislation, uh, we, I think, allocated about 600 hours each year to just updating our regulations codes in light of um, all the different new laws. Um, our age-friendly action plan, we're looking to have uh, the public review draft released momentarily and then looking at adoption shortly after the general plan. Um, once the general plan is adopted, we're going to get going on citywide rezones for general plan consistency, reviewing, removing maximum density standards for multi-unit commercial and industrial zones, um, and we hope to complete that work in 2025. Cannabis code amendments, we have a new senior planner on board who's actively looking, working on this, this issue with a preliminary analysis and engagement um, starting uh, now in the winter in 2023 with the Planning and Design Commission workshop in the spring. Um, we'll be bringing forward various technical changes to the committee in early 2024, um, updating our uh, Title 17, our Planning and Development Code. As for housing policy, big chunk of our workload, the Mixed Income Housing Ordinance, we'll be discussing the preliminary recommendations this evening at Council. Um, as I mentioned earlier, looking at our permitting requirements for special needs housing, our low barrier navigation centers required by state law, allowing them by right in mixed use zones, looking at other standards and restrictions or updating our locational restrictions for temporary residential shelters, um, allowing other uh, types of housing that just can accommodate um, a variety of different households and incomes. So we'll have a workshop on that uh, early in 2024. We have a lot of policy changes we've been working on in the past years and continue to work on, and so we uh, will have an educational campaign on affordable housing, benefits of infill development. Um, certainly we'll be talking about missing middle housing, um, and so that will be moving ahead in fall of 2024. Um, we coming to council for a workshop in spring of 2024, just a midterm evaluation of our housing element that was adopted in 2021. Um, looking at movable tiny homes, drafting an ordinance for that um, by winter 2024. Updates to our Tenant Protection Act, supporting code enforcement in this work. Um, that act sunsets by the end of 2024, and so we'll be working on helping out with outreach and data collection next year. Missing Middle Study, great uh, conversation and direction from the council last week. So we'll be updating our zoning code, our design standards, um, and uh, adoption by the end of 2024 20, or sooner with that. Neighborhood and community planning, uh, Stockton Boulevard specific plan, draft EIR will be released uh, momentarily, and then we'll be, that adoption of that plan will follow the, the 2040 general plan's adoption in spring. The River District specific plan, uh, work will begin uh, winter, we have a consultant selected, 
We're looking forward to get going on that. The city owned 102 acre site, taking our opportunity and constraints analysis and looking at tentatively going in January, then following up with community engagement and then council direction um, on the long-term land uses. Neighborhood Development Action Team continue to work on a variety of fronts with community education, training, implementation grants that they will be rolling out soon and sharing with council. Um, as for climate policy, uh, the public review draft on the existing building electrification strategy has been out. We're still getting some comments on that and we're looking to have approval of that strategy in the spring. Um, moving ahead with vehicle and bike parking requirements, revisions to that, eliminating city mandated parking minimums and establishing parking maximums while at the same time working with our parking manager on management. Um, and then once the climate action adaptation plan is adopted, looking at heat reduction of the public realm, design standards for development um, that uh, reduce the heat island effect, also looking at healthy food initiatives as well. Um, and then also just noting that we, our applications will be open for the planning academy uh, this month with our 22nd class. And that concludes my presentation. Um, just note, we have increased staff capacity. Our project managers continue to get more experience. Um, feeling good about next year. Just a lot of work that will be coming to fruition. Um, and just in terms of looking at the long term, in the staff report, we do have our, our draft 2040 general plan implementation actions um, for the next 20 years of planning. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. I um, want to commend you and the whole community development team on such a great and thorough report and also just your continued good outreach to all of our council offices whenever we want to talk about anything. You're definitely taking on some big things and I appreciate how open you are to working with all of our offices on those big things. So with that, do we have any public comment, Madam Clerk? Thank you, Chair. We have no public comment. Awesome. I know everybody was offered briefings before this item, so I hope we can be as quick as possible so we can keep moving. Vice Chair? Madam Chair, I'll be very brief. Um, just want to applaud staff on the great presentation and the great work. Um, our ability to review this, we've done so, and I would like to make a motion to forward it to the full City Council for consideration where we can have a second bite at the apple to have more conversation. Thank you, Vice Chair. Councilmember Kaplan. As well, quickly, um, I just want to express concern. Um, I'm not sure you're doing enough. <laughs> Take on more big things, Greg, please. <laughs> um, I, I just hope uh, we can get this to like the mayor's office of community engagement and others because, again, I think we need to highlight everything the city of Sacramento is doing because everything you presented is not a little item. It actually is a really big item pushing Sacramento forward towards goals of where we wanna go in increased density and more housing and safer streets in our communities. So thank you to you and your staff um, for all that you guys do. Um, it's been a lot and I know you're not always fully staffed. So thank you, It is we are coming up on the holiday season. Um, Work can be replaced. You and your families cannot. So please spend time with you and your families. Thank you, Councilmember. Vice Mayor. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I have about three changes in the. No, I'm just <laughs> no, I just want, I Ten pages of notes. Ten pages again. of notes here. No, no thank you. I, I appreciate, you know, I, I, it's um, over the last, gosh, I think it's now been nine years or so. 
it's uh, I, I just want to commend the staff and, and the culmination because not all of this happens all at once in the building of where we're at, but it it just shows the breadth of work that we're actually doing. So um, again, congratulations on that. It's no, it's not um, for those who don't remember. You know, you're, they're, they're, our team got recognized um, nationally for their work, and um, I want to make sure that that just doesn't get you know forgotten and put on a uh, the dust on a shelf. So congratulations on all that great work. Yeah. Oh, the council member already seconded recognition. Well-deserved every time it comes. Thank you, um, Greg, for your presentation. All in favor, please say aye. aye. Proposed abstentions, measure passes unanimously. Thank you. All right, item six has been continued to January 16th, so that leaves us with one last item, seven, Sacramento Forward Policy Package Stakeholder Process, which I am presenting briefly here. Um, we have been having regular meetings with city staff since Law & Ledge last heard the council member proposal on the whole package of items and those meetings will continue as well as with stakeholders. Um, we did have a stakeholder meeting on November 17th um, that was attended by representatives from SRBX, the Construction Employers Association, the BIA, as well as representatives from the Sacramento Central Labor Council and the NorCal Carpenters. Um, I will note that the trades were not able to attend that meeting but have been engaging with us on this proposal really since March of this year um, and are as a body neutral and there are individual trades unions that are engaging to support this proposal as it moves forward, hopefully, after today. So I don't need to tell anybody on this dais about the severity of our homelessness crisis. One factor contributing to this crisis is a lack of access to living wage jobs, which is what this item proposes to address. While some developers have cited that enacting prevailing wage would cost increase costs by 30 to 40%, research shows that the actual cost difference for just wages should be closer to 6%. The reason contractors who don't pay prevailing wages come in so low compared to contractors that do is that those low road contractors are often, unfortunately, violating labor laws, as well as, pay, as well as paying below living wage levels. What is missing in the staff report is that research shows that contractors who misclassify workers, commit wage theft, and are otherwise not giving workers the pay and benefits they are entitled to under the law by doing things like cutting off hours before they're eligible for health care benefits, for one example, cost the state of California over $3 billion a year just in enrollment in public subsidy programs. Contractors who do follow the rules are being outcompeted by these unscrupulous actors, which is simply not fair to them or the workers that they employ. To top all of that off, contractors who do follow fair labor practices and pay their staff a living wage have been documented to finish projects earlier due to the high productivity of their workers. Um, there are several things outlined in the staff report, but one of the things missing um, due to due to just time and staff capacity is a draft ordinance that was submitted by stakeholders that I will review briefly so that folks um, can see. I know stakeholders have seen this language and so some of you may have from them as well. But to preface that, I just want to say that the proposal is to limit the scope of this ordinance to projects that receive a public subsidy over a certain level and that are over a certain size. And I do know that there may be discussion about what the appropriate level of subsidy and size is, but the intent is not to cover every project but just a subsection of projects that happen in the city and that this ordinance is mainly about compliance with existing law um, with the addition of prevailing wage which as I said should only increase project costs by approximately 6% if all other labor laws are being followed. This will level the playing field for contractors who are doing the right thing and hopefully influence the broader construction industry to start taking proactive steps to ensure that all contractors are doing right by their employees and our community at large. So briefly I will review the high level 
items here in this proposed ordinance. And what I'm hoping today is that we provide direction to staff to work with the city attorney's office and stakeholders to actually bring back a redlined ordinance for us to consider. Um, that is something that I think um, we could do um, based on all the research that's happened and there are a lot of legal folks involved in some of these stakeholders that I'm sure would love input um, as well. But at the moment, the covered projects are defined as anybody receiving a public subsidy that is over 10,000 square feet or 10 housing units. I will say that the majority, the vast, vast majority, beyond majority, probably like 80% of the permits we issue are for projects under 10,000 square feet, that this would only impact a couple dozen projects permitted in the city. And those are, and even a smaller subset of those that receive public assistance, since a lot of those do not. Um, we outline specifically the different public assistance types that already exist under our current city codes and state laws. Um, and we talk about prevailing wage being set, um, which is pretty standard language, that apprenticeships would be offered, which is something that creates the job pipeline that we desperately need to get more people into the trades and to be able to build this residential housing. We define what appropriate healthcare expenditures should be, which any employee working over a certain number of hours should be eligible for already, but is unfortunately not often receiving. Um, we also talk about local hire, and we made it very broad. We talked about that we have a goal of at least 30% of the construction hours worked to be performed by residents of the county of Sacramento, but it is just a goal. And that is something that the stakeholders in our meeting commented that they appreciated the flexibility of that provision and not being too rigid in terms of where and how they target, but really setting a goal and reporting to that to the city. The most important part of this ordinance, I think, is the record keeping that we are asking um, all contractors to do, which again, if you're following the law, should be records that you already have, um, that these are records that would be provided to the city and the city would have the enforcement ability of either withholding development permits or withholding permit, building permits or occupancy permits if the contractor is not in compliance, which is something that could be rectified as soon as they come into compliance. All of this would be waived if the contractor has an agreement with one of our local unions, um, so that since that agreement usually requires certain record keeping as well. Um, yeah, and I think that is the big, big piece here. Um, obviously, the city attorney's office has not reviewed this ordinance yet, so obviously we'd want their input and feedback on how this is constructed, what might be missing, what questions or concerns they might have so we could bring something fuller baked back to the committee for consideration, but that is the general premise here, um, is that we are introducing an ordinance that would allow us to raise the bar on con contractors who are receiving public subsidy and ensure that the law is being followed and that obviously if they're receiving public subsidy that they're paying the type of living wage jobs that allow those workers to afford housing in our community. So with that, I will stop my overview. I know I kind of raced through that in interest of time um, and, uh, and hopefully I can be happy to repeat any piece of that that my colleagues may wish that I kind of brushed over. And with that, we'll move to public comment, Madam Clerk. Thank you, Chair. We currently have seven speakers. First speaker is Vance Gerard followed by Trevor Newquist. Good afternoon, Chair Valenzuela and committee members. Uh, I always hate going first at these things, so hopefully I do well. Um, I want to thank you very much for engaging us as part of the stakeholder process of uh, this ordinance. Um, we're very uh, grateful to be a part of not only this discussion, but the entire Sacramento Forward policy discussion as well. Um, that being said, we're hoping that as we move forward through this process that uh, this item will be considered alongside the rest of the Sacramento Forward uh, proposals, um, which was our understanding that we would be moving forward in that way. Um, 
in general. Uh, we're also hoping to see that if this proposal is going to move forward that we will see uh, a thorough fiscal analysis for how this will impact the cost of projects. I believe the ordinance language states now that any uh, project with incentives valuing $50,000 or over uh, would trigger this ordinance and uh, if we're if we have the goal to build more affordable housing, we want to make sure that we're not uh, putting more of a burden on the cost of development uh, over the value of $50,000 and then kind of creating a wash uh, as part of that process. Um, so as we move forward, we, uh, we'd like to take a closer look at that, a closer look at uh, the uh, realness of the problem within the city to make sure we know how many bad actors there are, the extent to the uh, impacts that they have uh, as well. Um, that's all I have to say on this item at this time, and we hope that we can continue to be a partner in building more affordable housing throughout the city with you. Thank you. Thank you. Congrats on not being in the shoulder sling this time. <laughs> Thank you for your comment. Our next speaker is Trevor Newquist, followed by Nilden Charles. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Trevor Newquist. I'm with Construction Employers Association. We represent over 100 union general contractors in Northern California, a lot of which perform work for the city of Sacramento. Um, I've had a chance to review through the proposed ordinance, uh, specifically the labor standards, and they're very consistent with what our contractors are required to meet on every single project within Northern California. And that starts with providing fair wages and fringes for workers that continues into providing adequate health care coverage and also the utilization of state approved apprentices to ensure safe work environments. And these are some of the key concepts for our contractors that um, are really embedded in their core values and what they want to provide on every single project. Unfortunately, these core values are why our contractors lose out on work oftentimes because of bad contractors that come in, undercut our contractors, are consistently committing wage theft, tax fraud, aren't providing adequate health care coverage, are utilizing an out-of-town workforce that's unskilled. And so we really feel that developers that are receiving these subsidies and incentives from the city should be motivated to use contractors that are compliant, that care about the health and well-being of their workers. And so we believe that these developers seeking incentives and subsidies should have to earn them, and that really starts with the labor standards within the proposed ordinance. So that's all I have for you today. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Neilden Charles, followed by Lindsay Sakasitz. Hello, council members. My name is Neilden John Charles, and I'm a representative for the NorCal Companies Union. So I want to start off by just saying that, um, yes, we need to build more housing, right, so we can house the on-house. But uh, like I said our, at the last meeting, the city needs to do more in preventing construction workers who are building these homes, um, more opportunities basically to be moved to the middle class. The house carries is very simple. If a taxpayer's dollars, which is our money, is being used to fund housing, then we need to make sure that the workers who are building these homes do not become homeless. And the way of doing this is by giving them the opportunity to earn their way into the middle class provide a wage where we can buy a home, especially if the city is investing into that project. Right now, the way it sits, the city gives endless incentive to developers, but the homeless numbers keep on rising. It is the obligation of the city to also prevent homelessness while at the same time building housing. If a developer chooses not to invest into workers, then they should use their own money or private funding, but not taxpayers' dollars. They can opt in or not. 
but if they choose to opt in, then let's support the workers by providing them a livable wage. Construction workers built this city, so why are we currently taking advantage of them and not providing them the opportunity to earn a livable wage? As a city council member, yes, you can be proud of the number of units that are built, but homeless prevention is just as important. Do you know that the construction industry is second when it comes to suicide? The financial hardship is real in the construction industry. And you, right now, have the opportunity to save a lot of lives. You have the authority, right now, to make a difference by having this ordinance move forward. Let the city of Sacramento be a problem solver and not continue to be a contributor to the problem. When you know better, you must do better. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. Lindsay Sakaseets, followed by David Perez. Good morning. Uh, my name is Lindsay Sakaseets. I'm a member of the local 46 Carpenters Union. I'm a six-period apprentice. I'm a 40-year-old single mom who used to struggle daily to make ends meet, relying on government for medical and food stamps for my family, just to barely scrape by. As a union carpenter, I am able to provide for my family wages that allow me to pay my bills and put food on the table. We have a benefits package, medical, dental, and vision that isn't deductive from our hourly wage. It has its own package. I no longer have to dip into government assistance. As a union carpenter, they invest in me. I just got back from a three-day women's in the trade conference in Washington, D.C., and in June, I went to a Vegas for third, the third year leadership training. I am part of an apprentice, apprentice mentoring program where I help mentor first through fourth period apprentices to help retain our members and help them be successful, which is why it's important to have jobs available. If an apprentice sits at home on the ready-to-work list for an extended period of time, they won't stay because we all have bills and most of us have kids to provide for. As a union carpenter, I get hands-on training through the training center as well as on-the-job training, all of which is documented so, we have, so when we are hired, you know we are skilled and that we are competent. I'm proud to be a carpenter. I have dignity and honor in what I do. My kids are proud to tell people that their mom helped build the Highway 50 bridge expansion. Doing life on your own with kids is rough, but worrying where your next meal is going to come from or if electricity is going to be shut off shouldn't be one of those stresses. I don't just have a job or a union. I have a family, community. I have men and women who have my back, who mentor me, and I can call on them anytime. Being a carpenter changed my life. I can stand on my own two feet financially and not be a burden on the taxpayers. I'm learning skills I can pass down to my daughters and the carpenters are helping me to break the cycle that my family's been in for years. Um, it's a sense of pride that all people should have when they go to work. Thank you. For your comments, our next speaker is David Perez, followed by Alyssa Lee. Good morning, council members. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. My name is David Perez, and I'm a proud journeyman union carpenter in favor of this issue. Today, I'm here to highlight the importance of community and building opportunities for our citizens. I wanna highlight the four and a half years of training that go into our apprenticeship, the amazing teachers that provide classroom instruction on safety and best practices. I wanna highlight the mentorship our journeymen provide, knowing they are personally responsible for building our next generation of craftsmen and women. And I would like to highlight the importance of a living wage retiring with dignity because you earned a pension, and the most importantly, health insurance. Recently, I was out of work and visiting very large construction projects here in West Sac, only to learn that they were non-union. 
and that most of the subcontractors were from out of state. Somehow, even with the added expense of lodging, they were able to be the lowest bidder. This comes at the expense of real wages. This comes at the expense of providing health care. And this comes at the expense of the working men and women of our community. As a returning citizen that received a life sentence in 10th grade, I want to thank my community for the second chance. I want to thank the policymakers. And I want to thank the Carpenters Union for allowing me to contribute back to my community, to lead by example and to embrace values that lead to a better and safer future, a future built by Carpenter, the Carpenters Union. So I want to thank you for your time. And with what I have left, I would like to say, whether you're trying to address the turnover of politicians, our deficit, public safety, you do it by hiring these people. Thank you for your time. Our next speaker is Alyssa Lee, followed by Fred Latou. Hello, my name is Elisa Lee. Um, I live in District 4. Um, I am not um, a tradesperson or ever had a history in labor, but um, I'm so moved by the stories to show really the transformative impact that an ordinance like this could have. Um, I know that there have been things in the news about different laws that were proposed that would require or different battles between labor unions and attempts to have affordable housing requirements um, and how sometimes it gets pitted against each other that we either get affordable housing or we get uh, labor getting uh, dignified treatment, a fair wage, and it's just a really unfair, unnecessary dynamic that pits uh, the rights of workers against their community members, their neighbors, and other fellow residents who need this affordable housing. So um, while I can't speak from that perspective of being a worker, um, as just someone who's been really... Uh, vocal about trying to get more housing, more housing built, um, you know, encouraging that as you talk to developers who might cite this as a way to hold more affordable housing hostage or say, you know, we can't do this, saying, you know, really embracing other strategies to reduce building costs. So I want to really uh, commend the council for doing something very specific and straightforward, like banning parking um, minimums, a really simple cost that can be cut that doesn't um, cut into uh, workers' wages, but still reduces the rents um, and also makes our city more livable in the process. And just keep thinking creatively in that way as you talk to developers, as you talk to your constituents who might uh, feel like, oh, this is a labor versus affordable housing issue, because it's not. There are so many other ways that um, our developments are restricted by unnecessary zoning requirements um, and that we really can change those so that we don't have to pit these two forces against each other and create enemies where there shouldn't be. Thank you. Our final speaker is Fred Latou. Good afternoon, council members. My name is uh, Fred Latou. I'm a Sacramento uh, business representative for Sheet Metal Workers Local 104. Uh, I represent hundreds of residents here in the city of Sacramento, and I'm proud to stand before you today speaking in support of Sacramento Forward. Part of the work our trade union does is to help recruit and retain people from the city of Sacramento from disadvantaged communities who have traditional barriers to employment. We change lives every year by helping people become trained in our state-of-the-art apprenticeship program and go to work for one of our many contractors. We are very intentional in our efforts to hire people of color, women, people impacted by the justice system, and veterans. 
One major problem that Sacramento faces is we have way too many people hoping to access our apprenticeship programs and not enough developers willing to pay prevailing wages, provide employer-paid health care, or value the tried-and-true model of apprenticeships. Too often, we see low-road contractors building out our housing, unsafe job sites with dozens of OSHA violations, and construction jobs going unfilled because given poverty wages, rarely given health care benefits, and having little to no formal training, who would want to sign up for that as a profession? The status quo is not a sustainable model. Sacramento Forward's labor standards address this major issue and will significantly improve the well-being of the workers on the construction sites, provide good career opportunities and training, and will build long-lasting housing that our community deserves to live in. I urge you to please support Sacramento Forward. It is good policy that lifts our residents out of poverty through solid middle-class careers, ensures quality, affordable housing stock, and moves our city forward in an equitable way. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I will just say, because I forgot to say it from my notes because I was trying to go so quickly, um, this proposed ordinance has been over a year in development um, and conversations. And one of those conversations was with some friends of mine who work at HCD, our state housing agency. And it was funny when I brought up this component of the proposal to them, they were like, oh, you don't already do that? Um, because there's been all of these state laws that have passed and they really see a certain inevitability in this being the requirement for any incentive program. And so this is a real opportunity, I think, for us to craft an ordinance that works for Sacramento um, before necessary, and maybe we could even inform some of that state policy discussion rather than having the state bill pass and us have to figure out later how we can make this work within our own city priorities. So I just wanted to add that in as sort of a timing and broader context point. And with that, I'll pass it over to my colleagues, starting with the vice mayor. Thank you, Chair. And I, I recognize we've got 11 minutes left here. I did um, text the clerk, so hopefully by 1.15. Yes. So, <laughs> we have a little wiggle so, room. Um, well, for, first I want to just thank all the, you know, all our the workers out here who've come out here today. Um, you know, I, I recognize that sometimes you have to make a, a choice to, uh, you know, leave the job site to come and advocate for your rights. And if there's anything that I know just, just from, um, you know, growing up, you know, as a laborer, as my family's being a laborer, that... Um, when you leave the opportunity to work, you're missing an opportunity because uh, you have to feed your family. And once the job is done, once the construction job is done, then you hope there's another job later on to continue that work. So to me, I, I want to first recognize the time you've taken to come out here. Uh, second, you know, uh, just because, you know, we've, we've had, the, we've had a, that unfortunate situation in our family, more on the agricultural side, but the issue of wage theft. And I think, you know, uh, when someone uh, puts a, uh, you know, their, their hard work, their back into uh, providing either whether it's uh, growing food or, or building the housing or the infrastructure for our city, um, we need to make sure that, that wage theft is something that gets addressed and, and tackled on. You know, what is owed to someone's day's work should be, should, should be given. It should be, um, um, uh, you know, made sure that it, it's not taken advantage of. Uh, the you know a couple other thoughts that have that have come to mind here in this um, about one of the uh, you know I did the walkthrough through Aggie Square this this last week and um, seeing all the all the workers you know many of them who had never thought of construction uh, before um, and then uh, signed up either through the Building Trades Council or the Northern California Carpenters for the first time 
and that project itself has exceeded its apprenticeship numbers. And finding so many people, well, there was a food truck event where we found where there were a number of folks who said, you know what, I never thought about the construction trades as an opportunity, and they were working as a barista in Starbucks. And all of a sudden, the, the, the change in their life, being able to have a skill that no one can take away, uh, to be able to have something for them to say, uh, I don't have to depend on anybody else anymore, was something pretty powerful to hear. So the issue of the apprenticeship programs and making sure that they're qualified apprenticeship programs. And uh, I appreciate the sheet metal workers being here today because um, they've got another step in, in getting credential uh, accredited with uh, American River College. So, you know, they also get college credit in those uh, as well. And I know some of the other uh, the, the union halls also uh, do that as well. But it gives them on-ramps for the future. Uh, it may be, you know, uh, it may be, uh, you know, welding today, but... In the future, they could be their own contractor too, and uh, and I think that's uh, uh, you know the, the the issues that what are we doing in public policy that are helping people to become self-sufficient and provide an opportunity for their future, you know I think those are those are important things. The other piece that I you know in in that walkthrough that I had today this week this last week, um, you know we pushed it heavily on the issue of local hire, and um, the concept of local hire I'm willing to pay more. To hire my own neighbors, I'm willing to make sure that you know that you know folks who uh, you know aren't uh, you know I don't begrudge anyone from Nevada who is looking for work that comes here. You know they're they're trying to do the same thing, but we shouldn't reward folks who are who are uh, uh, you know uh, taking advantage of those workers in desperate need uh, when we want to also support our local workers here. And I think the local hire pays dividends because when we uh, increase the skill of our workers, we hire our workers, they spend their money in our local businesses and our commercial corridors. They keep those businesses open because they're here. And because they're here, they're here when something happens in their family. And I know this because, you know, got a call the other day. My kid had a fever. I had to go pick him up. Imagine if you have to go two or three or four hours to, to go back to your family. Like, to me, I think that's such an important thing about what are we doing building local jobs for local workers? And those are important factors. So, one, I want to, um, you know, uh, thank um, all the, the time and effort that folks have put into um, putting this component together. I do, uh, uh, and I, and I, I want to say that I, I support those, particularly like the healthcare components um, uh, as well. Um, but I do want to make sure that, that we continue the stakeholder process. And I believe that, that you've committed to that, Chair. Uh, and making sure, I think the, the, one of the folks brought this up, uh, that they want to be engaged in that so that, as you said, it fits Sacramento and that we have a solution for Sacramento uh, on things that are already the law. So, uh, and worker compliance, I think, are, are, are important. Uh, but I also, you know, even with the previous item we had here, you know, we have to be able to construct and have work for workers to work. So uh, I think it's important to, that these, all of these policies are taken into account. The previous item when we talked about, you know, uh, the tax, that's why I worry about, you know, how we, uh, how we look at a property tax or vacancy tax if it can impede the ability or distract somebody from wanting to build here. So to me, I want to push for efforts to how do we continue to grow, build, and construct here. How do we grow the manufacturing jobs? I know uh, Procter & Gamble is looking at, um, uh, at uh, another expansion of their ethanol plant. They hired union labor to build their last eth ethanol plant uh, four years ago, four years ago. And that, uh, that employed so many people. 
So I, I'll just uh, I'll, 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 and to say that we have to make sure that we maintain our, our competitiveness also so that construction and growth happens here and that we also uh, make sure that we're taking care of the fundamentals of, of health care, hiring local, and making sure we're upskilling our own community. Uh, those are, I know this is not a, a voting item, uh, uh, Madam Chair, but I think those are some important factors, you know, knowing what it's like to have parents who, who didn't have even a high school education or fourth grade education, that in the trades, you can immediately all of a sudden join the middle class. So I think that's an important thing. Well, and all in my comments there, Madam Chair. Thank you. And are you okay with the direction to ask the city attorney to bring back a red line ordinance? Yes, but it has. But I, what I would encourage that it yeah, be more with, stakeholder stuff, with yeah. the stakeholder process, and that uh, all of the stakeholders that are related to the construction side and the housing side be involved in it. Uh, to your point, to make sure that it it fits Sacramento. Absolutely. Thank you. I had booked three hours for our last stakeholder meeting, and they only took one. So I was like, I'm ready. Let's sit down and work it out. <laughs> Always down for that. Thank you, Councilmember Kaplan. Thank you. I just want to build on what my colleague. Um, had already stated, and I've been very clear when I asked the questions, you know, what problem are we solving? And is, is the language being proposed going to solve that? But also, I, I think it's important that with the stakeholder meetings, I want uh, the next one to be a city uh, staff-led, um, which I appreciate all that you've done, but I want that accountability of, um, because when something comes back, I want to make sure that the city in their report is giving um, an area economic impact. What is the economic impact uh, to Sacramento? I know one of the items you've looked at is establish a city compliance process. You know, is that already in the works? Do we already have that? What is the cost um, to build on that? You know, I grew up in a union household. I've worked for a union. Uh, I do a lot of school construction, which we know is generally prevailing wage uh, when we look at everything, but I want to, so a lot of it is, I, I want to see a city-led stakeholder process because I know some stakeholders have reached out and indicated they were not invited and want to be invited um, to make sure that their uh, voices are all heard. I need a city economic impact analysis. Um, I want to know how this all comes in with our community benefits ordinance we're also considering. Um, I don't want to be in conflict with everything that we're looking at. Um, wanting to double check with our city attorney as well as uh, our lobbyist um, with new legislation coming in for affordable housing and streamlining, making sure anything proposed isn't going to run afoul to that. Are we actually uh, jumping in an area the state says you can no longer jump in because I know that was a, a big issue. And then when we talk about local hire, I think it's really important, but let's look at local hire. We call ourselves the SACOG region. Let, let's keep it within the SACOG, because I thought I saw somewhere it mentioned just Sacramento, but I think we should really look at when we look at local hire, it's the SACOG region, because that's that's generally where you look at people who work in and around the local area. It's more um, to that reference. So, um, you know, when it when it's the time for it to come back, I want it really to be based off of we've done the stakeholder process and we have where the city staff can give us their thoughts and feedback on how do we implement this? Can be this be implemented? What does state law says? Is anything preventing us um, before it comes back? Great, thank you. Yeah, and I think we have a lot of expertise among the stakeholders on some of those questions. So definitely welcome that. Vice Chair. Just very quickly. Um, in all the years that I've been on the council, I have never seen a group 
that did as well as this group did in sitting here through a two-hour agenda <laughs> and being as professional as you have been. And I just want to thank you for that because, you know, you could have made it very difficult because maybe your item could have been heard earlier or something of that nature. You sat here the whole time, and I don't take it lightly that maybe this cost wages, um, as, as Member Guerra says. Um, but also, for those who didn't come up to speak, I just want to thank you for being here in support of what we're doing. Uh, and those who did come up to speak, I want you to know that your voice was heard clearly. I know by all of us, but especially from this person, I heard you clearly. I heard your emotion. I heard your content. I heard your professionalism. I heard you clearly. And I just want to thank you for that. to end the discussion. Thank you, Vice Chair. So the direction to staff is to um, work with the city attorney's office to continue work with stakeholders um, on a draft ordinance and another stakeholder meeting or a few <laughs> and some clear questions asked that we would like to see included in the next staff report. Um, anything I'm missing there, members? All righty. Any questions from staff? Awesome. Direction is given. Cool. Moving forward, I know that seems ambiguous, but I'll just say that. Next step. <laughs> Next step being taken, y'all. So thank you for your time again today. And um, with that, do we have any committee comments, questions, ideas, things? All right. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you all so much for coming to this meeting. Yeah, I was asking. Uh